Acts chapter 9, as you're turning there, I got to celebrate real quick. Y'all know that I'm a big FCA proponent and fan and what God is doing at Hyatt's Middle School. Um, This past Friday, when Scott and I were there, we had 74 students, 6th through 8th grade, gather at 7 a.m. to study the Bible there at FCA, and that is blowing my mind. We are slowly creeping towards 10% of that school that is coming to be part of FCA. Can you imagine what God could do if we had 10% of those middle schoolers that were studying the scriptures and on fire for Jesus? And so I'm super excited about that. Um, Keep praying. If you want to come see it, let me know. We would love to have you as our guest on a Friday morning um, to participate in that. Well, uh, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. If you want to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, Acts chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 9 as we continue this series, Ghost Stories, looking at conversion stories in the New Testament when people met Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, it says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied, but get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by his hand, and they led him to Damascus, and he was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. Let's pray. God, we love you. Lord, would you take what we are looking at in this scripture, Lord, illuminate it by the power of your spirit, God, so that we could understand eternal truth. And God, would you give us ears to hear from the throne room of heaven today? God, I pray not only for ears to hear, but receptive hearts, God. And we want to be obedient followers of Jesus as we live this out. So Lord, would you give us the ability to do that very thing? God, we invite your spirit's presence among us. May we not leave here the same. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, some things in life are just unlikely. Uh, Here's a few examples of this that I wrote down. It's actually very unlikely that in your lifetime that you'll get struck by lightning. I looked this up. I didn't know this. It's actually a one in a million chance that you'll get struck by lightning. It's unlikely, no matter how much you may believe so, that if you go swimming in the ocean, that you're going to get bit by a shark. It's actually one in four million. That's your random fact of the day. You can talk about that over lunch or at the water cooler on Monday. Third one, this is a good one. It's unlikely that you will ever win the lottery. No matter how many times some of you continue to play the lottery, thinking that you're going to be that next multimillionaire in the United States, you actually only have about a one in 300 million chance But when the Powerball reaches that billion mark, it actually goes up to about a one in a trillion chance because so many people buy those tickets. Some things are just unlikely. And here's my favorite one. I made made this one up myself, so you should be proud of me. It's unlikely that if you go to McDonald's today that the ice cream machine will be working. (laughs) That will never happen. Some things in life are just unlikely. 
But what I love about Acts chapter 9, this passage today, is God tends to operate outside of the confines of unlikely. God tends to do his best work outside of unlikely situations. In Acts chapter 9 today, in this passage, God takes this unlikely person, Saul, who was a murderer, and through the power of the gospel and the spirit of God, God makes him one of the greatest missionaries to ever walk the earth. You see, it's very unlikely that a murderer would become a missionary, but that's exactly what God does here in Acts chapter 9. Let me give a little context to this chapter. At this point in the book of Acts, as Seth talked about last week, I told him i got to start my message cleaning up his mess, but we'll figure it out. I'm just kidding. As Seth mentioned last week, this important shift has occurred in the book of Acts. From chapters 1 through 8 in your Bible, the majority of the conversation in those eight chapters has been the conversion of the Jews. As this new church is formed, we see many, many Jews coming to faith in Jesus. And it centers around just a few individuals, Peter, John, two of the apostles, Stephen and Philip, two of the first deacons. But as we saw last week through Seth's message, in Acts chapter 8, the attention moves away from just the Jews. Now it moves toward all people, also the conversion of the Gentile people. God's church is expanding beyond just the Jewish people to all people, Gentiles included. But now in Acts chapter 9, we see this important moment take place in church history where a man is chosen by God specifically to take the gospel message, the hope of Jesus, to the Gentiles across the known world at the time. The most unlikely individual that God should choose was a murderer of all people. But when the Spirit of God is working, this is so important, God can rewrite somebody's story for his glory. Let me give you three points quickly today. The first one, this moment in history starts with a very unlikely individual. A very unlikely individual. Chapter 8 of Acts, as we saw last week, started with the, the spread of the gospel rapidly to various places that the church was scattered. But now in Acts chapter 9, we just ended last week on kind of this high note, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. This was a, a huge moment in the church. But now in chapter 9, there's this, this dark cloud that's over the birth of the church, who is specifically a man named Saul. Who was Saul? He was a young rabbi from an area known as, as Tarsus. Saul was a Jew by birth, a practicing Pharisee or religious leader of the day, one who kept the Old Testament law with the utmost zeal. You can read more about that in Philippians 3. And now at the start of the church in Acts chapter 2, Saul viewed this new religious group, these followers of Jesus, as a threat to the Jewish faith. For them to claim that this man named Jesus was God was blasphemy. And Saul believed that all of these new followers of Jesus must be punished. You can read there in your Bible in Acts chapter 9. I would circle or underline this word if you have a hard copy. That the Bible says that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the church. Breathing threats of, of murder is meant to, there's this word picture associated there of a, a, a cattle. Think of a large bull or a large cow that is frustrated and they're, they're snorting through their nose. You guys know me, my brain immediately goes to old Looney Tune cartoons. You remember the, the matadors when the bull would run and you would see that cow and it would duck its head down and that bull with its big horns and it begins snorting smoke out of its nose because it was so mad and it wanted to hit 
that red cloth. That's that same picture here that we see with, with Paul. He's breathing threats and murder against the church. Philippians 3.6 says that he was a persecutor of the church. Acts 26 verse 11, Paul in his own words says that he punished the church. Acts 22 verse 4, we read that Paul was a murderer of followers of Jesus. Acts 7 verse 58 says that he was present when Stephen was stoned to death. You see, this guy's biography is very clear that he hated the church He hated disciples of Jesus, and he thought it was his job to eliminate them for blasphemy. Verse 1 there in your Bible, you can read where it says that Saul went to the high priest of the Sanhedrin. That's a big word. It was the governing religious body. They were given authority by the Romans who controlled all of the territories during that time. And he wanted their authorization to find these followers of Jesus, to capture them, and then imprison them for this newfound faith. Bible says in verse 1, he was heading someplace specific, Damascus, about 150 miles from there in Jerusalem, where many followers of Jesus had scattered in Acts 8, verse 1, following the death of Stephen. But here's what's interesting, and I I would uh, mark this in your Bible, underline this. I, I love for you guys to mark up your Bibles, by the way. I think that is a great spiritual habit. When Jesus teaches you something, you learn something new in Scripture, mark that dude up, all right? But it says something very specifically there in verse 2, that he was going after followers of the way. Now, we don't refer to one another in that same regard today. We call each other Christians here, but where did that that phrase come from? John 14, 6, it'll be up on the screen, where Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Their identification was this famous saying of Jesus, that he was the way of salvation, And so these new Jesus followers, that's how they identified, followers of the way. Did you know that it wasn't until Acts 11, verse 26, that we were called Christians? It was a derogatory term, actually, and it means little Christ. It wasn't a a word, a badge of honor necessarily at the time. It was a a term of just derogatory fashion, mocking us. Those people think that they're, they're just like Jesus. That's what we're shooting for, right? But what's interesting about this moment here in Acts chapter 1 is Paul thought he was a representative of of righteousness. And you're thinking to yourself, wait, this dude was imprisoning Christians. He was trying to round them up for murder. I mean, what's going on here? He thought he was doing a good thing. Why? Because these people, Paul thought, Saul thought, excuse me, were blaspheming God. That's what he thought. And here's the reality, and this is important for us this morning. Paul was missing the entire point of Jesus' ministry. Paul was missing Jesus. Man, you ready? This will be good preaching. Here we go. Don't get so caught up in your religion that you miss the movement of Jesus. Don't get so caught up in your preference. Don't get so caught up in what you think about something that you totally miss and you put on blinders to what Jesus is doing. You see, when Jesus actually shows up, things change. Can I remind us of this too, if there's one thing we can cling to in just these first two verses in Acts? Don't underestimate what Jesus can do in someone's life. Don't underestimate how someone's life can radically change when Jesus shows up. No matter where they are, no matter how they're acting, no matter what they're doing, when the Spirit of God shows up and Jesus intersects their life, as the old uh, saying goes, somebody said, when Jesus arrives, there goes the neighborhood kind of a thing. When Jesus arrives, things change. Some of you have children today that are prodigals and they're not walking with the Lord. Some of you have spouses that are not walking with the Lord. 
Some of you have family members and coworkers and friends that are making horrific decisions and they're not walking with the Lord. Can I encourage you this morning? Don't give up on those people because when Jesus finally shows up, things always change. And our God has the specialty of taking the most unlikely of individuals, turning their life around and using them for his glory. Point number two, an unlikely situation. Saul's conversion, I think this is so good for us to understand today, doesn't find its surroundings in a temple. Paul wasn't here in a church service. He wasn't at a youth camp. He wasn't with another believer who shared the gospel with him. When Saul met Jesus, what was he doing? He was on a mission to murder Christians. In verse 3, it says that he was several days into his journey in Damascus, about a 150-mile journey. It took about six days for these folks to get there by foot. In verse 3 of Acts chapter 9, everything changes. Look at verse 3 again. As he traveled, and he was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. A few things to note here. First, historically, if you are a devout Jew, which Paul was, we read about that in Philippians, Galatians, throughout the book of Acts. If you were a devout Jew, they always believed, according to their Old Testament, that when a light from heaven showed up, they knew it was a message from God. That meant the glory of God was there, and they needed to pay attention. Paul was a devout Jew. He knew this. He knew it was a message from heaven. You can see that in verse 5 as we'll look at just a second. Second, this light was unexpected. This caught these individuals off guard. But here's what's interesting. Paul retells this story in Acts chapter 22, specifically in verse 6. And he doesn't say, I think this is so good to note, that this light appeared at night. He actually says it appeared at noon, the middle of the day when the sun is the brightest. Look at what this says, Acts 22 verse 6. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus... At about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. So if a light so bright that it catches your attention flashes at the brightest point in the day, what does it mean about that light? This is super technical, so you need to pay attention. You ready? That it was really bright. Like it was super bright. If you guys uh, ever, I, I take my girls to school in the morning, and when I drop them off at school, I leave the school parking lot and I drive east. Here's, here's a little science for you. The sun rises in the east, if you didn't know that, Okay. I'm driving east, and when you drive east in an Ohio morning, what happens? You can't see because the sun is so bright. You're putting down your blinder. You're trying to peek around so you can see whether the light is green or red. You can't see a thing because that light is so bright. And the indication here in Acts chapter 9 is that this light was brighter than that. And not only was it bright, but it was enveloping. But it came all around him. Third, Saul wasn't the only one to see it. Acts 9, verse 8. It says, so that his, he got up from the ground and those eyes were open. He couldn't see anything. So they, what? Took him by the hand and led him to Damascus. There were other people there that saw all of this. Why is that important? Why did Luke include that in the book of Acts? Can you imagine you take this guy that's a murderer and he comes to our church? He says, hey, just so y'all know, yeah, I've got a history. I killed a lot of people. No big deal. Um, I got saved last week. Can I work in your kids' department? No, you can't. <laughs> you can be a greeter, maybe, but we're going to put you in handcuffs or something. Luke includes this because I think, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong here, but, but I, I believe that there were other people that could authenticate the story. Yeah, they didn't quite understand what was happening because they didn't hear the same voice, but they were there for the experience. They knew something had happened to Paul, and they could authenticate what happened to him. Last, we just said this a moment ago, this was the personal presence of God. I mean, 
Saul wants us to understand this. Luke wants us to understand this. When God shows up, his glory manifests as, as light. Let me give you a few here. Matthew 17, verse 2, talking of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says that when Jesus was transfigured in front of them, Peter, James, and John, what happened? His face shone like the sun. Do we see it? It's the same thing that's going on in Acts chapter 9. His clothes became white as light. Revelation 1, 16, when John sees Jesus on his throne, said he had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was what? Shining like the sun at full strength. John's vision is, again, confirming this thing, that this was God appearing to Saul. Then we see in Revelation 21, at the end of time, when we make it into eternity, what do we see here? That the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. What does Luke want us to see? What does Saul want us to see? That this was the presence of God intersecting Paul's journey. And what's his response? I love this. Verse 4. Falling to the ground, he heard the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know that Saul didn't just take his hand and go, oh, I can't see that. Saul didn't take his arm and cover his face. Saul didn't simply hit his knees and go, whoa, what's going on here? The word fall down there in the Greek is, it means to literally lay flat on your face in the dirt. Why did he do that? Because when you are met with the glory of God, the only proper response is for your nose to hit the ground. When we truly see God for all he is, that's why I get so frustrated when people say, when I get to heaven, me and God are going to have a talk. No, you're not. You and the golden streets are going to have a talk. Your teeth are going to be down licking the gold, man. Because when we're in the presence of God, that's the only response. And now, he's surrounded by this bright light. And what does this voice say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His name is repeated two times. Why? Because in the Greek, it was meant to invoke intensity. It's like if your mama today uh, were to call you down from your room. My, my name is uh, Aaron David Taylor. Those are my three names. If, if I was up in my room and I heard the, this, Aaron David, you knew you're in trouble, <laughs> Right? You knew you, were, you needed to pay attention and get downstairs as fast as you, you could. But here's what, here's what was worse. If you heard the words, Aaron David Taylor, that meant you ran, right? Because you were going to get whooped, right? So for Saul here, what's he here? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, what's going on here? Why is this important? Notice that what, is, what does Jesus say? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's what he was doing. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? That's not what he said. What did Jesus say? You need to circle the word me. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you know that Jesus takes the persecution of his church personally. That when people mess with the church, you mess with Jesus. And that's a good reminder for us this day and age as eternity awaits us. No matter what persecution you may have gone through, that you may go through and someday may come your way, that that is a personal attack against Jesus. And may we never forget, y'all, this is so important this morning. May we never forget as followers of Jesus that even with the church's flaws, even the church's dysfunction, even her imperfections. I'm talking about this church. We're a hot mess around here, if y'all didn't know. Things around here are not perfect. We got our flaws messed up. We're, we're just a mess around here, but we're sure trying to pursue Jesus. 
And the Bible says that even with her flaws, dysfunction, and imperfections, that this church and every church is still the bride of Jesus. And may we be so cautious with how we speak of and treat Jesus' bride. Let me go ahead and tell you something. You talk about my wife in the wrong way, I'm going to thump you. And every man that was in the room married said, amen, right? Somebody dogs your wife, you're going to give them a little uppercut, right? You're going to make sure that they meet Jesus kind of a thing. May we view the same way. When we talk negatively about the church, that is an offense to Jesus. Man, that's so important. Verse 5, what's he say? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Saul didn't know it was the voice of Jesus up to this point. He just knew it was God. He saw a bright light as a Jew. He knew it was God. It's why he refers to him as Lord, respect, authority. It's why he fell to the ground, because he knew it was God, but he was confused. How, how was he persecuting God? Wasn't he an agent of righteousness against those who were blaspheming his name? And what's he here? I'm Jesus. Jesus takes this unlikely individual in an unlikely situation and turns things around. The one that you've been persecuting is me. I am God. I am the resurrected one. Verse 6, and get up and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do. You see, Saul had a decision to make. He could disregard this voice from heaven and go along on this mission that he was going to go round up these followers of the way. Or he could face the reality that Jesus was alive, that Jesus was God like he said, and he could view him as Lord. So what did he do? Verse, verse 8, the unlikely result. says he got up from the ground, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus. Real quick as we begin to close. God took this proud and ruthless man that we saw in verse 1, and in verse 8, he made him a broken and helpless man, one who had been totally dependent upon himself to one who was totally dependent upon Jesus. The Bible says he didn't see for three days. What's interesting, in Galatians chapter 4, we can actually read that Paul, for the rest of his ministry, struggled with his eyesight. Why was that important? It was, I believe, a reminder for Paul to never revert back to that state of proud and ruthless. I believe that this constant reminder that Paul could never quite see right was to remind him to always be dependent upon Jesus. Christian, can I ask you today, can you make it through the next 24 hours without Jesus? Goodness. We need to be reminded all the time. I believe that's sometimes why God allows us in certain situations to be totally helpless. Why? Because it reminds us that we have to be dependent upon Jesus, that I'm not going to make it through if Jesus isn't by my side through everything. What's Paul do following this moment in verse 8? There's several different places we could go here, but based on what we know, Paul started at least 14 churches. In verse 1, he was a murderer. By verse 8, he was a missionary. He shared the gospel with literally hundreds, if not thousands of people, he raised up disciples who we continue to reference today in the scriptures. He wrote just under half of the New Testament in our Bible. I think it's interesting. In verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, he was snorting threats against the church, seeking to persecute and imprison. And by verse 9, he was waiting on a command from Jesus. What do I do next, Lord? I'm yours. Why is that? Because when Jesus shows up, even unlikely things can happen. Let me close with this. And God's really been challenging me with this this week. It's a good reminder. If God can do that with Saul, what could he do with me? If God can take a murderer and make him into a missionary, what can he do with me? Because I may often, like I very many times do, feel unequipped. 
I'm too scared, too busy, every excuse that you name, but what could God do with you and me if we just said yes to him? What could God do with us if when our feet hit the floor every morning, we said, Lord, from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, I'm yours today. I say yes to everything that you ask of me. Now, what do you want me to do? My pastor used to say, put the yes on the table before God even gives you the assignment. I'm reminded of the quote as we close by the late D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist. Many of you have probably heard that name before. And D.L. Moody said this, that the world, it'll be up on the screen, The world is yet to see what God can do with a man who's fully consecrated to him. No matter your background, no matter what you've done, where you've been, decisions you've made, if you're fully consecrated to the Lord, what could he do with you? And here's what I love. There's a second part of that quote that doesn't often get quoted, but it's my favorite part. It's that the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And what a church, if this was our prayer, By God's help, I am to be that man. Lord, I'm going to be that. And I give all of me to you. Yes on the table. Lord, what do you want to do with me? Because if you can do make a murderer into a missionary, what could you do with me? I'm the most unlikely candidate, but what could you do? Church, I hope that encourages you. Let me pray. And I'm going to ask, and they don't know I'm doing this, for the praise team not to come. And I'll explain why. God, we love you. Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, would you mold us into the image of Jesus? May our prayer be like that of D.L. Moody. By God's help, I aim to be that man. I aim to be that woman. That God, no matter what life brings my way, God, I am wholly given over to you the rest of my days. Use me for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.